This is Talk on the Wild Side. I'm Rob Smith and ding dong merrily on high welcome to the Christmas edition of the podcast that aims to get you closer to nature. It's ideal for listening to while you stuff the turkey, bake a mince pie or fill a stocking with satsumas. You can calm your nerves after a fraught game of Monopoly with the family or even listen to it on headphones in the middle of the silent night. I'm really chuffed with this episode. No really, chuffed. That is the sound of a red-billed chuff, birds that have been missing from Kent's skies for over 200 years, now being reintroduced to the wild at the White Cliffs of Dover. At the moment, they are teenagers. <laughs> um, and so at some point next year, as the breeding season uh, starts, the hormones will kick in, and so the priorities for nesting will also kick in. I visit the University of Kent, who've won a Kent Wildlife Trust Gold Award for their sustainability work, planting new orchards, minimising their carbon footprint, and even nurturing great crested newts in ponds right in the middle of their Canterbury campus. It doesn't cause problems. What we find is um, most people don't know they're here. They're quite a small secretive species, so people just walk right by them and don't know they're there. And I meet farmer James Smith, who's transforming his 200 acres of land at Loddington Farm away from intensive methods, growing fruit for supermarkets and managing to become much more nature friendly and make a better living at the same time. I think once you get on the journey of dedicating your your farm for nature you look for it more so you end up sort of celebrating it more and it's it's part of the journey. So come traipsing with me through the deep and crisp and even snow for a spot of wassailing and let's see if we can bagsy some figgy pudding. Now, red-billed chuffs are a kind of crow. While you might be able to mistake a rook for a jackdaw in the wrong light, you would never mistake a chuff because its wickedly curved, fiery red beak and bright red legs makes it instantly recognisable. Now, sadly, even though they were such iconic birds in Kent that they even feature on Canterbury's coat of arms, loss of their favourite habitats and misplaced persecution, it it was believed in medieval times they could set fire to things, hence their Latin name, Pyrocorax. It means that they have been extinct in England for at least the last 200 years. But that is now changing, thanks to Kent Wildlife Trust and the Wildwood Trust, who have teamed up to find a place where they can have the best chance of survival on the clifftops, at Dover. Now, chuffs are unlike other corvids in that they have very specific habits. They like to nest on cliffs and they like to forage in insect-rich grassland. So this last year has seen the chuff reintroduction programme finally, after years of planning, reach the point where the birds could start to be let out of aviaries and into the wild. It's a phased programme to give the birds the best chance of establishing a viable colony and I was lucky enough to meet up with Liz Corrie, who is the Chuff Release Supervisor at a discreet location near Dover Castle, to find out more. I tell you what, this is a this isn't a bad place to work, is it? <laughs> Stood up on the hills here, overlooking the castle. Glorious sunshine. It's not bad. 
It's not bad. I mean, right now we are blessed. It is December and the weather might be a little bit cold, but the sun is out and there is no wind. And that is extremely unusual for Dover. There is no wind. Normally it's blowing a gale and it's not as nice. <laughs> so we're actually walking around to the, the secret location, the, uh, the release site where the chuffs have been first brought to. Um, it's quite a special spot, this in lots of ways, isn't it? Because of the, the different landowners you've got around here. Yes, um, and that's what makes it quite an exciting and challenging project in some respects, is that um, there are, I mean, the landscape looks quite similar, but it is divided up into um, different owners. We have uh, Kent Wildlife Trust, National Trust, private owners, uh, the council. Um, and uh, yeah, it's trying to work with these people and different partners and seeing how we can best improve the habitat for this species. And we're walking through a field with some sheep. Uh, so this is farmed land here. It's uh, it's actively well. That's a big part of the project, isn't it? How you interact with the landowners. Yeah, and it's one of the reasons why we chose this as a release site um, for the the success of this project for this for this the species to be released. They need to have the immediate um, habitat to be you know a good condition for them to be released. <clears throat> we don't expect the whole of Dover to be ready in time for doing this sort of project. The idea is that the chuff is a flagship that drives forward further habitat restoration so having the the grazed land here is great because it should mean that we have the soil invertebrates for the birds to feed off but also the sheep have a, a second benefit is that the birds actually use the wool for nesting so they they line their nests and protect their eggs with sheep's wool all right let's go and have a look because the uh, the chaps are actually in the the release cage at the moment aren't they Yes, yeah, so this is actually quite unusual. Uh, the birds have had full access out um, and they can come and go as they please since summer. But um, with the way that we're managing this project, we are monitoring the birds every day, we're radio tracking them, we're supplementary feeding them, and we're keeping an eye on our health. And we had a bird come back last evening and he was limping. So we kept them in overnight because they were, they were there for roosting anyway, they're sleeping. And first light, we had a look at him and he has had a, he sustained a bit of an injury to his foot. So at the moment, all the birds are currently locked in the aviary whilst we're just treating him. So where actually are we now then? So we're in the, um, we're inside the release aviary. Uh, and this particular section is sort of a multifunctional space of being the key porch, the uh, equipment storage, the kitchen prep area, <laughs> um, everything, everything one could need in a release aviary really. Um, and it then takes it into the next management areas of the aviaries where we've currently got a bird locked away and we're just going to catch him up to have a look at his foot. Okay, so this one who's injured his foot, what, what's he called? He's called Aristotle. Okay. <laughs> he is the male of the, the five chicks that we reared this year. Um, he was given that name because he's quite a talkative uh, bird of all of them. He was the first one um, to start vocalising and didn't stop. <laughs> <laughs> right, okay, and uh, and he's hurt his he's hurt his toe. Is that the correct word? Talon, claw? What's the word? Yeah, so it looks like he's damaged the claw, um, which is is fairly common injury on these birds. I mean, they're amazing. If you you do get to see them when they're out, particularly on Dover Castle, you'll see them sort of like cling to the side of the walls. In fact, I had one of the security guards at the castle 
asked me if they're like spiders because <laughs> he said they're just like that like spiders climbing up the wall and that's because they're just trying to get into every nook and cranny exploring to get insects of any kind um so it may be he's just done some sort of injury to himself um climbing that way or he's had some sort of um, interaction commotion with another species out there but we don't know all we know is that he's got this injured uh, digit that we need to deal with because it might get infected right i'll let you go and deal with Aristotle's dodgy toe then. <laughs> Thank you. Do they mind being handled? Yes, but this is another reason why it's been very useful to use. We wanted to use these hand-reared birds for the first release because they're a bit more, um, more accepting of being handled like this. Um, and it just means they're a little less stressed because they they recognise us. You know, no one likes to be <laughs> no one likes to be netted and handled, um, but they can tolerate it a little bit more, um, and it just makes life a little bit easier for both parties involved. He's been quite patient. He's sort of looking up at you with a kind of "What are you doing?" <laughs> sort yeah. of expression on his face. Right, so you've had a little look at uh, Aristotle's toe. How's he doing? It looks okay. It's scabbed over. So um, he's had some barrier ointment put on it that's like an antibacterial thing. Um, we just have to keep an eye on it, really, in case that wound opens up and there may be an infection. But at the moment, he's okay. He's now in with his siblings, so he should be a little bit more calmer. But he does look a little bit unhappy <laughs> <laughs> about the situation. But... Hopefully they'll cheer up in a second because we're about to give them their, their supplemental food. Yes, because this is the thing, isn't it? That it's a, it's a staged release programme. This You haven't just said, right, chuffs, off you go, see how you get on with it. The, the, you're keeping a very close eye on them and monitoring what they're doing and, and reintroducing them into the wild step by step. Yeah, exactly. And in terms of the supplemental food, we touched on the, the habitat earlier. You know, the... There is some good habitat out here, but there's not enough to sustain the population at present. So for these initial few years of doing the releases and releasing these new birds, we're providing them that extra food just in case they need it. In a case like today, they're obviously confined to the aviary for, for this catch-up, so we're going to give them food. They've you know, not been out exploring. Um, on a normal day, they will be out, going around Dover, getting what food they can. But of course, it's winter time, so there aren't that many insert, inver- invertebrates in the ground. Um, with winter, you have the challenge of frost, meaning that they, you know, some ground they can't actually access, or as seems to be more and more typical with English winters, is the the water. So the ground is actually quite waterlogged at the moment, and so there won't be those insects around. So this provides them with that extra few calories they need to get through through the day. Okay, so you're going to you're literally about about to do washing up the glamour, the, gl- <laughs> the glamorous side of nature conservation. You're washing up their feed bowls. Yeah, it's the bit that you don't normally see, really, um, especially on the glossy magazines. So. Um, we are actually fortunate that the uh, farmer here has put a tap in, so we have uh, running water, but again, wintertime, it's running freezing water. Um, Mary had the ingenious idea of bringing up a flask of hot water, because um, sometimes the tap does freeze, but yes, I, I'm now out in, what is it, two degrees Celsius, having to, do, <laughs> having to do the washing up in a bucket in the field. Right, crack on. So what do you actually feed the chuffs as their supplemental food? 
So it's loosely based on the captive diet. Um, they get live mealworms, which are pretty much their favourite. Uh, I guess in a way, though, it's equivalent to handing out chocolates for, for us because, yes, they're, they're tasty um, and, you know, everyone loves them, but they're not great in terms of nutrients. Um, so we also add to that they've got a mixture of a hard-boiled egg, breadcrumbs, and then a, a diet that's like a commercial diet that's made up and it's it called an insectivorous mix right. so it's a bit like uh, a dry fruit mix i guess if you're making a cake uh, the difference being it's got dried shrimp in it right okay. <laughs> and so would these be the kind of things that you could buy in a pet shop or do you have to get them sort of specially made up uh, uh, different so in their diet like that uh yeah these days they're because you know, because a lot of people do supplementary feed birds in the garden, um, a lot of these diets are now being made and commercially available um, on sort of those those big brand marketplace internet shops. <laughs> um, but yeah, we 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 buy ours in. The particular one we're looking for that we've got is quite high in protein, and that's quite important for this this species. And so it does come at a higher cost. Okay. Um, because yeah, you know, lots of people obviously want to feed birds in their garden and put out supplementary food for them over the winter mm-hmm. um, and sometimes people end up putting out maybe stuff that's not so good for birds so what's your basic advice for people who want to be helping whatever birds that are in their garden i think it's giving um giving birds a mixture because each species is slightly different you know we're talking about chuffs here that are insectivorous species um so they'll be wanting those um you know, like I said, the mealworms or anything that's got sort of dried insects in it. Um, you'll also get your finch eating, uh, finch eating, sorry. <laughs> you'll also get your seed eating birds um, and fat balls are quite a good one at, at winter time. Not in summer, but definitely in winter. And you'll notice, you know, me personally at my, my house, I get a mixture of, you know, the different various species of, of tits. You've got the finches and then I've also got the jackdaws and the, the rooks coming, which... I personally enjoy <laughs> seeing them coming to feed because I know they need that food. Yeah. Right, so Mary, we're going to go actually into the uh, into the aviary. What are we doing? Uh, we're just going to put the food up for the birds that we have in here. Mary Brooks is the other key figure in this project. She's the chuff release technician who has responsibility for the day-to-day care of the birds. So you put the food in the trays for them. What have they actually got? Uh, they've got um, a diet that we make for them at Wildwood, which is a mixture of egg, breadcrumbs, and a um, like a commercially available insect diet. And the actual trays you're putting in, uh, they're sort of like shallow plastic kind of Tupperware yeah, they're, they're basically, trays, um, but you've got a whole, a whole bunch of holes cut in the, in the lids, so that, what's that for? Range of functions, um, it keeps rodents out, it um, tries to make sure that the chuffs are the only ones that can access them, as opposed to jackdaws and magpies and other things that might take advantage right um, okay so the holes because the chuff chuff have got a very long beak haven't they um so they can peck through the holes to actually get to the the mealworms and the egg and all the goodies in there exactly and then yes. the other species can't exactly yes and uh, the lids also serve to uh, reduce the mess a bit and keep a little bit of the rain out are they messy the feeders then are they they're very messy feeders yes <laughs> from a personal perspective do you kind of form a bit of a bond with the birds because you're with them 
pretty much every day aren't oh, absolutely you? they've got huge um personalities um you know we know them as individuals and yeah they they certainly know us they uh, they behave differently uh when it's us and when there's other people here um am i putting them off a, a little bit but they're, they're they're um i think they're hungry enough that they will still come to eat So the whistle, yes, that lets them know it's feeding time. Exactly, yes. You know, when when they're, they're out and about, they can sort of sort of more audible for them for, from further away, so that they know they know to come. So from up here, I mean, they can fly. Well, they can go wherever they like. Once they're out, they're out, yes. aren't they? They can go miles if they wanted to, but they still come back. They they will come back. Yes, yeah. They 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 come back. Um, if, if not for the morning feeds, they always, they always come back for the afternoon feeds. Um, they're, they're quite reliable with that. And then, all too soon, my time with the chuffs was up. After they'd been given the option to feed, the aviary doors were opened, and within seconds the birds were away, free in the sky over the white cliffs, and making a beeline straight for the ancient walls of Dover Castle. And the hope is that over time, this will form the basis of a permanent wild population of red-billed chuff in Kent. They'll eventually be a common sight, nesting in the cliffs and become a normal, accepted part of wild birds that you find here once again. Yeah, exactly. So we've got another maybe four or so years of doing these releases, and it is horrible to say but it's pretty much a numbers game at the start um we're expecting to release 30 to 50 birds knowing that we will lose some of those whether it be naturally to peregrines or for some other reason um and so that definitely means we're going to have the release over here for those years but ultimately we're going to sort of start phasing back the the supplementary feeding the actual use of the savory um and they will start to use the nest they already use in the castle it wouldn't surprise me that by next year they will look to the castle as potentially a roost site and then maybe a nesting site and likewise with the cliffs at the moment they are teenagers (laughs) Um, and so at some point next year as the breeding season uh, starts the hormones will kick in and so the priorities for nesting will also kick in is this project you know trying to get the land in good condition for the chuff is that going to have knock-on effects on other species uh, and other you know the, the whole environment in general yeah definitely that's what that's what we're hoping for like we've already mentioned the soil biodiversity you know if that's if that's healthy then you have other um, insectivorous species that means it's healthy and then of course predator prey relationships if you've got enough of those around then the the predator species will also benefit so the peregrines for us are one of those um, love-hate relationships <laughs> obviously when we're doing the the releases we have seen young peregrines practice hunting with the chuffs and it's a very scary time for one and all um but it is only natural um and so you know we do want to be seeing those interactions in the future and you know if we do happen to lose a couple of chuffs to the peregrines well that means the peregrine has got food i'm sorry to say it's yeah, quite harsh it's a tough one isn't it red in tooth and claw um so the project's going well. I just want to return to the farmer side of things for a moment. The, the farmer has to be fully on side with all of this because otherwise it can't happen at all. Yes. No. He he's been he's been him him and the family have been very good. Um, you know, not only are we we're on his land, um, so we're taking up some of his space. It is um, working with us, and, and so far we haven't had any sort of 
major conflicting issues because you know the chefs have kept themselves and not particularly um, i hate to say it's not like we were releasing bison (laughs) they're not going to be that disruptive with the sheep and in fact we've actually started to um, find ways of helping each other so one thing in particular has been the water troughs so we have water troughs on site for the livestock birds are obviously known to use them and in the wild there are fatalities because birds will drown in them if they're not set up properly this is something that we have seen last year in the wild with um uh, juvenile chuffs that have sort of come out and they don't really know where to go and they've fallen in and drowned we obviously didn't want that to happen at the release site you know immediately the birds are released and they end up drowning so we've been um, working with a local blacksmith and and with the farmer and looking at ways that we can adapt these water troughs so that the livestock can still feed and drink from them but the birds are also safe at the same time Uh, and so that's been really interesting starting that process off again there's no simple solution there's lots of different water troughs there's lots of different livestock Mm. (laughs) Um, but it's just been showing how beneficial projects like this are because we're all coming together and in terms of the the the, the drugs and the pesticides the avamectins you were talking about have they been open to making those changes what what kind of conversations have you had around that um, well, that, that side of, is dealt really with Kent Wildlife Trust have been uh, heavily involved in that. Um, uh, so I haven't really had many conversations. But yes, they are very much open to be able to, you know, at the end of the day, it's about improving their, their livestock uh, welfare as well. So yes, it's being open to it. It's just trying to figure out the best for that particular site and what the best methodology is going to be. All right, okay. But there are actually some sort of unexpected benefits of them not using the chemicals in quite the same way, so that... Yeah, um, there's actually... There's, there's, um, there's, a, there's a group called, uh, I think it's the Farmers for Dung Beetles, um, and there's an Irish farmer who's actually shown that by not quite being organic, but really managing for dung beetles more, he's actually saved money. And that, I think, is the bit that people don't realise. They always think that if you have to go organic, it's going to cost a fortune um, if we can't use chemicals that are cheap and easy to get. Um, it is a slow process. It's not going to happen overnight. Um, but, yeah, if but we can... Because if you have more if, dung beetles, you have less flies and less, less fly strike as a result? Yeah, this is the thing. If, if you've got the dung beetles around, they're breaking up that dung um, and they're taking it away. But it also means that they're out-competing things like the flies that are causing the issues with livestock that farmers are also having to treat for. Um, so it does have a... And I think they've also shown that the actual... When this comes with dairy cows. They've actually shown that yield has gone up. So there's positives to it as well. So, Liz, for you personally, because this project, I mean, it took a long time to get it up and running in the way that it, it needed to... How are you feeling about it all now? Is it is it doing what you wanted it to? It is. I mean, I, I can't wish for anything better at, the, at this stage, really. Um, you know, we haven't suffered majorly with losses. We've got the birds going out and about. We're having lots of positive engagement with the public. Um, you know, lots of people. We've got murals in Canterbury. We've had uh, workshops in in Dover, and people taking interest. The the local the birders that are coming down. They've also been fairly positive about it because I realised that for them, this isn't technically a wild species. <laughs> you know, it's not the same as maybe one flying over from France and arriving in Dover. But they have been quite positive and they've been, you know, keeping an eye out for the birds for them. Um, and yeah, it's, it's just, you know, it is still early days. But so far, touch wood, everything <laughs> is, is going to plan. And they are just magnificent creatures to look at, aren't they? Just beautiful. They are. I, I will confess that when, you know, I, I've, 
I've been working on this project for a few years, actually, coming over advising Wildwood, and now I work for Wildwood on this. Um, and so I've been to Dover Castle when we've had our planning meetings uh, initially about the feasibility of doing this. So when I was over at the, the castle um, and I actually saw the chefs there flying around, playing around in the buildings, I will say it just brought a tear to my eye because it was just, this is exactly what we wanted. The next step, though, I need to move them to the cliffs. <laughs> I'd like to see them on the cliffs as well. But, you know, it's, it's, it'll take time, but they'll get there. Great stuff. Liz, thanks ever so much. Thank you. Many thanks to Liz Corrie, the Chuff Release Supervisor with Wildwood. And it has been a remarkable partnership to bring the project to this point between Wildwood and Kent Wildlife Trust, Paradise Park in Cornwall, where the Chuffs were originally bred, the Farmer, the National Trust, even the MODs played a role. If you want to find out more, then take a look at the Kent Wildlife Trust website. Now, 15 years ago, James Smith was determined to be the best top fruit farmer he could be, planting out orchards at 4,000 trees to the hectare to produce high-quality Braeburn and Gala apples for the supermarkets at Loddington Farm near Maidstone. But over time, something happened because he became more and more concerned about the amount of fertilisers and pesticides and fungicides and herbicides that he was putting on the land. And the wildlife seemed to be disappearing from the farm. And despite producing fantastic quantities of high-quality apples, the process never seemed to actually make him any money. So a few years ago, he started on a new journey of trying to farm more regeneratively and in more of a nature-friendly way to let it regain a foothold on his 200 acres and opening a farm shop to sell directly to the public and he found he got his farming mojo back in the process. Well James took me for a walk round Loddington and we started in his intensively planted apple orchard. We're growing about just under 4,000 trees a hectare on this system and we're using, this is a Braeburn orchard and we've got trees 80 centimetres apart and the the rows are 3.25 metres wide. And this is really sort of the blueprint that we ended up with as, a, as an intensive uh, apple orchard design um, with the aim of being able to produce high quality apples for as lower, lower costs as mm-hmm. possible in order to supply supermarkets. And as we're stood next to a tree here, it's covered in beautiful apples. I'm just going to pick one off here. Um, I mean, this is a Braeburn, isn't it? It is, yep. And yep. it looks great. They taste good too. Oh, there you go. Good <laughs> yeah, yeah. I th- basically we had a very strange year this year. You'll you'll see as you look in this orchard, you've got a tree like this one that's fairly loaded behind us, and then you'll have a panel of six or seven, eight, nine trees with nothing. Um, and so we had a pretty cold spring back in May, which just meant that there were the the flowers didn't develop into fruit mm-hmm. basically. But the fact that these trees are covered in fruit at all yeah. at it's early December now. Yes, this. This should have all been picked. It should have been, yes. The we because it was a light crop out here. We we also ended up, and we're we're trying to we're trying to farm in a way that um, is sort of moving towards organics. But we ended up with just a little bit of insect damage or a little bit of scab or something in here, which meant that the quality wasn't brilliant. It was a light crop, and then we can't re- access um, labour very easily anymore. And the labour we can access is incredibly expensive. So it basically wasn't economical 
for us to pick this fruit right. which is so this sad. this is what i really want to kind of get to understand is the fact that you i mean you've been on a bit of a journey towards regenerative farming yeah. over the last few years but as a commercial farmer so 15 20 years ago this is this was state of the art this yeah. is only 15 years old this orchard as it's there planted up yeah. um this was absolutely state of the art if you were going to compete in the, the commercial world to sell to supermarkets and you just can't make it pay no that's right there's a, a number of different challenges i think the weather is is a very significant one in terms of we get these these blocks of weather and if you get the wrong weather at a certain at a critical time all things in farming are about doing the right thing at the right time mm-hmm. and that like i uh, the example i gave about the the spring if you have a block of cold weather when your trees are flowering they won't perform particularly well equally if you have a very mild winter the trees won't perform very well because they need chill units to to set a good crop um so we've got the challenges around weather patterns whether you know climate change you know whatever the causes are and then you have so you then the availability of, of labor so we, if if we manage to grow a crop can we afford the labor to manage it during the year mm-hmm. can we then get the labor to pick it at the right time if we've managed that we can't afford the electricity to run the cold stores to then store the apples and at the end of all of that i know that the supermarket retailers won't pay us a profitable price so that that they're the sort of the underlying economics of commercial fruit growing in the uk so you're having to make some some tough commercial decisions about what you do with all of this and you're finding that actually going down the route of regenerative farming is, is answering a lot of those questions for you I think it's part of the process. We, we've been looking at regenerative farming. I ultimately wasn't happy with the way we were you know, farming commercial, conventionally. I- emotionally, you mean? Yeah. Um, so I, I've talked about it before, but it's this, this sort of dissonance, but the, the, the gap between what I love about nature and natural systems and how resilient it is and the way we have to farm in order to get a, a commercially viable crop. So... Mm-hmm. You know, we, we used to spray several times with, you know, fungicides and insecticides and lots of um, weed sprays and fertiliser. With all of the... And I knew that, that, that there's an impact of that, but we would say, well, that's com- commercial orchard, so that's where we have to produce the, 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 the crop. Then that bit over there is for nature. Mm-hmm. And so we would always do as much as we could in terms of making the farm a, a, a kind of a good place for, um, for wildlife and, and everything else. But then I started to look at how we could potentially change the way we were farming to try and make the whole farm attractive for nature um, and wildlife and uh, embetterment of the environment, as well as producing healthy, nutritious food. So, and that's really the journey that we've been on over the last few years, is trying to work out how we can, we can produce healthy food without harming the environment. And how's it going? Is it, is it heading in the right direction? It's... What I've learned is that it's very difficult to retrofit the way I want to farm into an established intensive system, mm-hmm. which, you know, I, I kind of suspected anyway. But the you can do it to a certain extent, but it's very difficult to... Um, this is the sort of the, the product of years and years of research, and as most farming models are, and it's been around the way that the way we farm. So... It's about intensive chemical use and kind of the exclusion of nature and everything else. So to sort of stop that, start to backtrack and work out um, how to do it differently, it does have its pitfalls. Uh, and what we find is that these these trees, it, it's almost like we're starting from the wrong place by trying to, you know, we, we've got to go back further than when we started this 
journey of intensification. Okay. So in five years' time, then, this orchard won't be here in this format? It, uh, it will certainly be very near the end of its days in this format. I wouldn't invest in another orchard designed like this mm-hmm. because I can't farm them the way I want to farm them. Right. So for us, we'll have orchards in the future, but they go back to how my great-grandfather used to farm right. and because we want to integrate livestock and, and everything else. So instead of the business being all about red apples to supermarkets, it's now about uh, a, a variety of healthy food that we're producing from a sustainable kind of environmentally sustainable um, farming model. So James, we're just wandering up from the orchard towards the chickens, yeah. and how, how many have you got? They're, they're just sort of out in the open. You've got a kind of a yeah a raised shed yeah, so in the middle, a coop. That's the, the uh, they're fondly known as chicken tractors, but. Um, it's basically just a converted trailer that we've made so that they've got somewhere to, to lay their eggs and somewhere to roost at night. And then during the day they're out. There's electric fencing to keep them in and keep the foxes out. And how many chickens are you actually running at the moment? So we originally uh, 200, but I think some of them made the bright decision to fly out and roost outside of the, the netting. So we've lost a few, but I think we're still at about 180 chickens. They're all coming over to say hello. Do, yeah. do they think it's dinner time? Is that what it is? Well, they're just—they're very sociable creatures. They—they they love and they do, of course, expect us to give them some uh, top up on their their feed ration. But they're out on fresh grass every day. And you can see them scratching and foraging or chilling out in the sun. They even seem to like pecking feathers out of each other. But um, but no, they—they they just again because they're moving every day onto new ground. They're providing a fertilizer for us. Well, I was going to say, so this is part of your this is regenerative of thought process. So what are the chickens actively doing for you, apart from the fact that you end up with, with chicken and eggs that you can sell in the shop? What are they doing in terms of the ground? So they're, 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 they're scratching. You're getting the animal effect on the soil. So they're scratching, pecking. They're, they're cleaning up all sorts of insects and eating plants. But fundamentally, they're then pooing on the, on the soil. And, and obviously, chicken poo is very um, nutritious for the soil. And so they're actually helping sort of kickstart the soil biology. And how long do they stay on an individual patch of ground for? Do you have to move them sort of every day or every week or how often do yeah, you Yeah, it's a bit of a labour of love. We move them every day. So they, um, they will have been on this patch today, then they'll be in here tomorrow morning. And so we, we move both trailers onto fresh ground every day. Uh, and that way they're always, they're not scratching around and feeding where they've been pooing the day before. They're always getting nice, healthy stuff. They're living like... You know, wild birds—they're foraging and scratching and and uh, chasing around. And then they're just—they've got the choice to go in the trailer if they want to. They all go in of a night, so they all roost in there at night. And we lock—we close them up at night, uh, and then we collect the egg, eggs once a day. And then, in terms of sort of the the insect life, then that you get in the fields, have you noticed any difference in that? Are you getting more dung beetles and those kind of things flying about the place? Have you spotted any changes with that? I'll be honest, I haven't really kind of surveyed it that closely. I, the way I look at it is that when after after the amount of rain we've been having, you can walk across this field um, without getting your boots muddy. And so there's other measures. I haven't been able to do that kind of very close sort of observation of you know birds and insects and everything else because of time. Mm-hmm. But what you do as a farmer, uh, you kind of you get a feel for the the health of your soil just by walking on it um and you can see it here just you know the, the, the kind of the greenness of it and and everything else so this is the this is probably the third time they've been over this field 
Um, we had a couple of raised beds over there where we were growing courgettes and turnips and bits and pieces. They've just been over there and raked all that over. Uh -huh. So, and you know, they so they're, they're just, doing the work for you. Yeah, exactly. I, th I think we've got we've got a bit of ground with some pigs on it, and they're cultivating for us. They're, pigs are great diggers, uh -huh. so we don't go in there with diesel and steel. We put pigs pigs in, and they they do the cultivation for us. So it's uh, it's just a much softer softer way of doing things. So you've got a few beehives here? Yeah. Are they for are they for honey or is this for pollinating the crops? Well they do both. Uh -huh. um, so we're we're lucky to have the honey as a bit of a byproduct, but we used to bring in hives every uh, every April and May for, for the main blossom period. Uh, now I've got two beekeepers that just keep their hives here all year round. So they're they and then they're we buy the honey off them and sell it through the farm shop. So it's another win win for the business. Yeah, exactly. So it, it and again, I think the, the, the bees do well here because we work so hard to keep pollen and nectar on the farm for as much of the year as we can. Mm -hmm. So the beekeepers like it because the, uh, the bees do better. Um, and we end up with this lovely population of pollinators that help us when, when things are flowering. And as I'm looking across here, so we've got a whole bunch of uh, sort of poles with netting on. So I think yep. you've got cherry in there? Yeah, so we've got, we've got three blocks of cherries, all of which have got rain covers um, over the top. That's really just to protect them from hail and rain mainly. And is that part of the regenerative element? Are you going to carry on with cherry or is that one of these things that was your kind of your previous thought process as a, an no, intensive farmer? We're, we're, going to, we're going to carry on with the cherries. The, the, the way we plant the cherries is always, has always been more extensive than, than the apples. We never went down the super intensive cherry production route and I'm glad I didn't. Mm -hmm. So we still produce quite a nice crop of cherries uh, if the if the spring allows us, um, but we do quite most a noisy of that. light aircraft going yeah. immediately overhead. Always the way. <laughs> but we, because we do so much pick your own, uh, that's now our focus is to let um, let customers come and pick their own cherries. Mm -hmm. And so again, it just means that we're we're not under quite so much commercial pressure to have really high yields and everything else. But the the cherries don't require quite the same kind of intensive management that the apples have they are they, it's just you, you know you've just got to um look after them and, and make sure you, they don't get rained on when they're ready to pick and just the other side there just the other side of the hives and the cherries i can see a uh, a wind turbine yeah. going away there how, how long has that been in so we put that up 10 years ago and it's it's just a small it's 11 kilowatt uh, wind turbine but on a day like today We've got 29 kilowatts of solar on the tractor shed roof and we've got that running. And so on a day like today, we're generating more than we're using. Uh, and it's part of our, it's part of our kind of just strategy to, to do, you know, de-risk and try and decouple from fossil fuels a bit. And, you know, and I, I love it. When the wind's blowing, I mean, fundamentally, it's earning me money. The wind's blowing and I'm earning money without doing anything. Uh -huh. So uh, it's... Uh, that is a win-win, isn't it? Yeah, that's right. Yeah. So <laughs> on a, and at night when it's windy, the, the turbine is still working. And mm -hmm. on a still sunny day, the solar's working. So it's just, you know, again, it's just about diverse income streams, I suppose. So James, you've come into the, uh, into the farm shop. This is the, where all the produce ends up. Yeah, absolutely. So we've got... Um, We've got some of our, our apples uh, here and we've got our eggs from our chickens that we saw earlier on. We've got some Loddington pork and um, Loddington venison in the fr fridge over there. And then we've got a whole range of other things. Obviously, all of the owlet juices are here uh, and then a range of other products. That means that Loddington Farm Shop's got something for everyone, really. So, owlet, this is your, your own brand of, um, 
of all sorts of yeah. fresh fruit juices, isn't it? Yeah, they're all, all based around apple or pear juice and, and blended either single varieties or blended with other fruits. Uh, and yeah, this, uh, we've had the Owlet um, business for about three years now. So mm. this is where we kind of showcase what we're doing. And, and, uh, and actually our own farm shop is one, one of our own best customers. So it's good. But all the other produce that's actually in here, and we're looking along, we've got Swedes and potatoes, um, courgettes, uh, onions. These are all not necessarily from this farm, but from local farms in Kent. Yeah, so whatever we're, we're not producing from Loddington. I mean, in the summer we were growing our own courgettes and we grew some turnips. Um, we're having a, go, a bit of a go at everything because I, I, I really feel that whatever we, can, we, whatever we can sell in the shop and I can grow on the farm, I want to grow on the farm mm-hmm. because that's, that's the whole point of the shop, really. If we're not growing it or we, can't, we don't have any at that time of year, then we go as local as possible. So if we buy apples, we buy them from a neighbour um, if we don't have any of our own at the time. And then it's Kent then it's UK, and then if it can't be UK, then it's you know wherever else we can get it from. And all those thought processes, is that primarily commercially driven, or is that regeneratively driven, or sustainably driven? What's the thought process behind doing this this way? I think it's ultimately the, 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 the business has got to make money. And for a, as a shop, I think you need to have a really nice offer, so... You know, it shouldn't be just down to the supermarkets to be able to offer everything to their, their customers. So but what we're trying to do is anything that I can produce on the farm and sell in the shop is, is, the, best, is the best for the business. Mm-hmm. So there's a commercial decision, but it's also... So that keeps your carbon footprint down, obviously. You're not putting yeah. it on a lorry and pumping it up the motorway. I mean, those eggs that are on the counter have travelled about 80 metres <laughs> from the chicken... <laughs> to the shop counter and then off to the customer's kitchen. Um, so, you know, it's about as good as it gets. The apples that we've got here, the Braeburn and the Gala, they have traveled less than a kilometer into our cold store than into the shop. Mm-hmm. And, and so fundamentally that is what I want for, to be our kind of point of difference that wherever possible, you've got the smallest carbon footprint, the smallest, the lowest food miles, because that's what makes Loddington special. And on a kind of personal, emotional level then, how do you feel about how you're farming now in comparison to how you were doing it 10 years ago? It's, a, it's quite challenging because you, you're trying to unlearn the last 20 years of your career. And I, I spent most of that time trying to be as good a apple grower as I could. And, and you know, we're invested and, you know, we've, we've ploughed a lot of time and money and effort into being an apple farmer. And I suppose, you know, when the penny dropped um, and then the pennies keep dropping, once the first one's gone, it's, you know, my, my analogy that I trot out all the time is it's like finding a thread on your jumper and you, you pull the thread and before you know it, there's no jumper left. But I think emotionally, I, I believe in what I'm doing. I believe in the changes that I'm making on the farm. I believe fundamentally it can work uh, and, and will work. But what, I, what I'm quite sort of passionate about is actually starting to talk to other growers and farmers landowners in the area to to work together to try and bring together sort of landscape mm-hmm. scale um, changes it's difficult to say it's difficult to say whether there's a material difference um, without doing some deep dives and getting like Kent Wildlife Trust or someone to come and look at some baseline surveys and and have a look but I know wherever we've 
wherever we have changed what we're doing and we've kind of stopped mowing or we've sort of allowed an area to scrub up a bit, we do see some really interesting stuff, you know, buntings and black caps and lots of little things. I think once you get on the journey of making sort of dedicating your your farm for nature you look for it more so you 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 end up sort yeah. of celebrating it more yeah. and it's it's part of the journey what i do know is i'm doing a lot less harm than i was and we i think it's always very difficult for farming to quantify the damage it does we've always been um you know well we're producing food so this is what we've got to do and and i just think you need a, a degree of humility you know and accept that actually we've ended up in a bit of a bad place and it's not how how now do we navigate our way out of it james smith there and uh, if you're interested in visiting loddington farm and taking a look for yourself well it's just south of maidstone near borton Montchell. see their website's got all the details about when the farm shops open and all that kind of stuff plus loads of great detail about what they're doing regeneratively and why they're doing it it's loddingtonfarm.co.uk Now, among the many things that Kent Wildlife Trust does to try and protect and promote wildlife conservation is the Wilder Kent Awards to recognise the work that people and organisations are getting up to in their bids to help out. Now, one of the Gold Award winners in 2023 is the University of Kent Canterbury campus. It's a sprawling estate covering some 300 acres at the top of Tyler Hill overlooking the city and the cathedral. It's a lovely spot and their sustainability coordinator is Emily Mason and I met up with her in the cafe of the Gulbenkian Theatre on campus before we went off to walk right across the site and see some of the projects that they already have underway that makes them a Wilder Kent Gold Award winner. 300 acres makes up our campus, yeah. And a lot of buildings on that, so obviously you do have a lot of... Your your carbon footprint as as an organisation is probably quite hefty, isn't it? It is, but we're working quite hard to keep to get it down. We've um, set our net zero uh, targets for 2040 um, and we're putting a lot in place, working in partnership with Siemens to look at how our buildings function to make them more efficient. Um, but yeah, how we respond to the climate crisis goes hand in hand with how we manage our campus. How many students have we got at the university at the moment? Oh, good question. I think we're somewhere between um, 16,000 and 17,000. So you've got quite a big job, haven't you? Yeah, it's um, it's a really broad remit in the sustainability team. There's two of us, um, and we cover broad sustainability, so environmental and social sustainability across the board. Right, okay, loads of stuff to go and look at then. Let's go and have a look. So, Emily, we've come for a little yomp down the the, the southern slopes. Is that what, yes. what we call it? Yep, the southern slopes. So everything that sits to the south of our campus is known as the southern slopes. And this is just a I mean, it's a glorious day. The sun is shining. It's quite cold, but it's a lovely place to be. And we are surrounded by um, well, hundreds, hundreds of freshly planted fruit trees. Yeah, so there's 300 fruit and nut trees and they were planted to welcome in the class of 2025. Um, so they're the students that will graduate in our Jubilee anniversary year. And so the university wanted to mark that. And so we decided to plant an orchard for them. Okay, as, a, as opposed to doing something else, there was a suggestion you were going to buy everybody iPads or something like that. And you were like, no, 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 yeah. let's do something better than that. <laughs> yeah, we thought let's use this as an opportunity to actually demonstrate 
appreciate the kind of stuff we do with our campus um, and I think a tree is a better legacy to leave for a student um, so we wanted to do something that was different that we've done on the rest of the campus we've done tree planting before but we specifically wanted to do fruit and nuts so to create a food area um, as well as something valuable for wildlife and this is quite a big so it's 300 fruit and nut trees as you yeah. say and they're all completely different varieties yeah there's about 10 different varieties of fruit and nut trees here um they were um purchased from brogdale mm-hmm. so locally sourced for us um and yeah we wanted to do something to create a habitat we didn't have but also we are embarking on a right to food journey which is we're trying to be the first right to food university in the country um, and what we want to do is look at how um our food supply chains work but also what we can do lo- locally to secure food so this was part of that as well and so we've got a pear tree here, a, a William Boncretien, <laughs> dating <laughs> according to the label to uh, the 1770s in Berkshire. So we've got some proper old varieties of stuff. These, these aren't kind of new heavy cropping type trees you're putting in yeah i think the we want to strike a balance between our heritage as a site so this is used to be an old orchard before the university was here um working with local people like brogdale they're experts in fruit trees um to understand what would work here work with our soil um and produce food but this isn't a commercial orchard this is about actually creating a destination for people to come relax in enjoy maybe pick some fruit off the trees um so we wanted to create something that was a little bit different because 300 acres in total uh, across the, the campus, that makes you actually quite a significant landowner. Not you personally, <laughs> but, but the university. You've actually got a decent enough bit of land to do something meaningful here. Yeah, I think that's something that I think we think of as a big re- responsibility. We want to be... Um, good neighbours who want to use our site responsibility and we've got some really interesting protected species on site um this is their home too not just ours so um it's really important for us to look at that 300 acres how we're using it how we create a mosaic of different habitats and how they all join up so you've been in post for what two years now i've been oh about five years about now, five years to, right okay. yeah so how have things changed in that period how how is the university doing stuff differently now to maybe 10 years ago yeah I think I've seen a huge amount of change I actually graduated from here in 2010 so even from then being a student here how we manage our site I think has changed massively from how we coppice our woodlands how we leave our grasslands to grow there's been a real culture shift in the decision making um, of really trying to do what we can um, and bring our students with us so students can see that difference use the natural space as an education tool not just the lecture halls so as i look around me here you know sort of under the trees for instance we can see there's brambles and things that are growing would they have all been cleared away in times past yeah i think um on the outskirts of campus maybe not cleared away but certainly things like the dead wood would have been picked up to make it look more neat um we're starting to see a relaxation of those things and um, the grounds team work really hard across our 300 acres and so actually giving spaces over to nature for them is a wonderful thing that they can do and they can then look at other different projects that they can work on like planting 300 trees okay and, and in terms of sort of biodiversity then have you seen a, a difference in the number of species that you actually get on the campus yeah i think one of the things that's been really exciting is um, we have a 24-hour security team so they are here all the time and they get to see stuff 
stuff the rest of us that go home at five um, don't get to see and the feedback we've had from them of you know hedgehogs running around central campus um, actually seeing the bats fly over central campus they really feel that abundance more than they ever did and people talking about the bird song is seems to be richer in spring than it used to be so um, it does feel like campus feels a little fuller than it did before excellent and these fruit and nut trees i mean they're going to take a few years before they actually start bearing fruit aren't they um i mean how how long before an orchard becomes kind of fully grown and productive yeah i think we've got another three to five years to go before we start seeing any significant fruit um i hope that students always feel like they can come back to kent and see how their trees are getting on um but i think it's it's something where we're going to see a much more immediate impact than if we did some like whip planting which is like the traditional way of planting trees We were walking along, and you just pointed out this pond here, the the Elliot Pond. This has got great crested newts in it. Yeah, so they're currently hibernating, but this is one of their main breeding ponds on site. So once we get into spring, you can see flashes of silver from the males' tails as they go about the pond doing their business. Now, I mean, great crested newts, they're, they're almost mythical, aren't they? They're, they've been <laughs> such a kind of like a poster kid for conservation down the years. Have you had to do anything? They just happen to be here, or...? Yeah, so on the site, we're quite fortunate. We've got a really healthy, large population. We have a monitoring project um, on the north side of our campus uh, run by uh, Richard Griffiths, um, who set up kind of the longest running Great Crested Newt monitoring uh, programme in Europe. And um, yeah, they were already here. And so we've been monitoring them with the ponds. The main thing we try and do is just keep the ponds healthy. So uh, looking at how pollution moves across the campus, making sure that our ponds are out of the way, making sure there's no risk to them. So actually, we don't have to do a huge amount um, but we do take great care when doing any work around the ponds making sure that we're not um, disturbing them in any way and this is the thing isn't it because as we said there's what 17,000 students plus all the staff and you know the, the campus is 25 odd thousand people it's a little city in its own right and yet you've got this here right in the middle of it so does that cause problems because I haven't seen a sign saying keep out or anything like that yeah, it doesn't cause problems. What we find is um, most people don't know they're here. They're quite a small secretive species. So people just walk right by them and don't know they're there. Um, where there are kind of pinch points. So um, we've got a quite a fast cycle lane that cuts just behind where we are. And um, we have little signs that uh, great, great, great crested newt crossing signs. Because when they come out of hibernation, they'll often come out of the woods there, come back to the pond they want to breed in. So they have to cross that cycle lane. And so we have had some casualties over the year so we put up the new crossing signs and we haven't had any casualties since so people are aware that oh i should maybe slow down and keep an eye out see if there's newts moving and then they're, they're then they're curious and then they'll write to me and say i've seen this sign what does that mean so it builds interest in our campus and as we were walking and i just want to ask you about it now you're building a kind of a vegetable superhighway through, through the <laughs> middle of the campus. What's that all about? So the river of vegetation. So what we're trying to do is link uh, the orchard project with the Kent Community Oasis Garden. There are two kind of flagship um, food projects in a way, but also there for well-being. And what we want to do is create an uninterrupted, uninterrupted path of vegetation, be that high pollen value uh, plants for our pollinators but also food for us and um, that takes you on a trail right through campus is a, a kind of wildlife corridor a pollinator highway but also a navigation tool for people to be able to move between those two projects and um, so it will 
deliver a lot of value for us and for nature. Yeah, so you're actually putting in sort of food crops in, in amongst this. It's not just wildlife. Yeah, so we're um, the first sort of breaking ground of the river of vegetation is actually taking place in a couple of weeks where the Student Conservation Society are going to be planting a nuttery in Parkwood. Uh-huh. Um, and Parkwood is our main student village on site. And so there'll be a kind of nut tree collection there um, being planted by the students in a couple of weeks' time. Right, OK. Uh, what kind of nuts will we see on? On campus then sort of walnuts and hazelnuts that yeah kind of and thing. a kentish cob nut of course and um, there's five different varieties that are being planted um in three different coops um in the student village and so yeah they're going to be uh, there for years to come and for students that live in parkwood they'll be free to collect from them in a, in a few years time excellent go nuts on campus brilliant <laughs> how are you doug i am how are you doing yeah, I'm okay. You good? Did you enjoy Doctor Who on Saturday? Yeah, I, I have really to talk did. to you about it. <laughs> so we've we've done a little yomp across the campus, yeah. and we've come now to the the Oasis Community Garden. Yeah. on the other the other side of the campus so also known as kent cog so the cog is the community oasis garden and it is a predominantly food growing site um, and it is managed by student staff and community members in collaboration and it's run by the university and our partner east kent mind and as i'm looking across here we've got dozens of uh beds which have got well, we've got sort of brassicas growing at the moment. I can see Brussels sprouts and I can see uh, a variety of different cabbage type things that are actually growing at this time of year. Various people are putting stuff into compost bins and wheeling wheelbarrows around. It's just like, a, it's like an allotment really, isn't it? Yeah, it's a, it's a collaborative allotment in many ways. It's designed, run by volunteers um, and the the dual purpose is to produce food so we produce about a metric ton of food a year Mm -hmm. Um, volunteers get first pick and then the rest is sold back to the university um, catering outlets so everyone gets to eat it and so why is this important to you as the sustainability person yeah so i think firstly for me it's i wanted people to see how food grows and and what the time it takes and how valuable soil is as a resource Um, i wanted people to have somewhere to come take time out Um, and I wanted to create a space where people could discuss their interests their worries around sustainability in a way that was adjacent to nature so actually be in nature while you discuss some of those things um, and really create something that is sustainability in action as well as fulfilling a need to bring people together and for you personally Mm. how does it make you feel when you see all these things going on because obviously sustainability is your job but it's kind of your it's your passion as well isn't it it's it's everything about who you are when you see all this stuff coming together what does it mean to you so this actually you shouldn't have favorites but this is my favorite project because i get to see what it means to other people i know what it means to me but to see others engage with it and i have quite a history with this site um i was a student here um in 2010 and i was one of the first students to put a garden here um and so when i came back to work here many years later to see it still be a garden and then be able to be involved in it and to create this space and what it's become um it's a real privilege like i love it i come up here i smile um when i don't want to be in the office here's where you'll find me (laughs) um so actually to be amongst nature we we, we garden in a nature-friendly way uh, but to be with everyone to mix with students work alongside student staff and community members all together it's the best part of the job and of course part of the point of you doing this as a university is that you can be a kind of a 
a flagship organisation to let other organisations know what you can do give people lessons let people know the mistakes you've made all that kind of stuff yeah I think if universities aren't doing this stuff then who will we, we should be leaders in this kind of stuff but also to look for solutions you know we're home of research so trying to find ways of working trying to find solutions to this kind of future vision we've got universities should be at the forefront of that but also to learn how to listen again I think universities should have their ears open and listening because we don't know all the answers so having this space in collaboration with East Kent Mind bringing in actual mental health professionals so we can start to look at that tra- that transect between mental well-being and nature and actually do research here and collaborate with an organisation that they've got their own expertise um, that's what this is it's a test bed of a, a different way society can structure around structure around food as well food is so vital to all of us it's a shared human experience so that's where the kind of right to food element also comes in well it's been a a a privilege wandering around on such a lovely day here and looking at it all um yeah keep keep going Uh, we will we will we we are we're only really at the beginning i would say i think there's so much more to do um and a university is a great place to kind of test all these and have fun have fun in sustainability and try stuff out yeah Emily Mason from the University of Kent and it really was remarkable to see how lovely a lot of the woodland is up there especially when you consider how busy and bustling the campus is. The Elliot Pond that we saw that's such a great spot for uh, spotting great crested newts is literally just a few yards away from the university's main nightclub venue and they really don't seem to mind. Perhaps newts are literally party animals. Who knows? Be that as it may, entries are now open for the 2024 Wilder Kent Awards. So if you know of a school or a business or a community group that really is doing some amazing stuff and taking positive action to restore nature, then make sure that they get entered and get recognised. Just go to the Kent Wildlife Trust website and search for the Wilder Kent Awards to get all the details. Now, since it's Christmas and you have made it this far, you are definitely on the nice list. So here's a bonus Christmas gift to you, the latest news. Top story this month is that Kent Wildlife Trust have got a major bone to pick with the National Grid. They're asking them to rethink Sealink. Now, this is all about a massive project that will see a new power cable be laid under the sea from Suffolk to Kent and then come ashore at Pegwell Bay. And it will then go through a number of really environmentally sensitive areas that should be protected under international law. Pegwell Bay is home to Kent's biggest population of seals, Golden plover, red-throated divers and turnstones have all been spotted in the area and the planned overhead cables would go right through Hacklinge Marsh's Triple SI. Or KWT's planning and policy officer Emma Wallace says, We are hugely disappointed to see that nature is yet again not valued and are asking the national grid to review the strategic alternative routes and their impacts on the environment to choose the least damaging route. In short, we want the national grid to rethink Sealink. 
Meanwhile, the newly appointed Secretary of State for the Environment, Steve Barclay, chose Darrant Valley in Kent to be one of his first places to visit, meeting farmers, the Wildlife Trust and partners to talk about landscape recovery projects and especially river restoration, with the River Darrant, a globally important chalk stream and a major threat from water abstraction, sediment buildup and pollution. Steve Barclay said, Nature is at the foundation of food production, water security and is critical to our economy and our mental and physical health. The Wildlife Trust will be holding him to those words, saying while his announcement of 34 new landscape recovery projects is a step in the right direction, too often in the past the environment has ended up being overlooked in the name of growth. Finally, an amazing piece of news for Northfleet Technology College, which has won a $150,000 prize and named a nature hero at COP28. As we know, COP28 has recently finished with wording around fossil fuels being included in the text for the first time. But there is an amazing amount of other stuff that goes on around the edges of the whole jamboree, including the Zayed Sustainability Prize. And it was students at Northfleet who set up a beehive business producing honey and wax to create sustainable products that were the beneficiaries. It's a project that also won the Kent Wildlife Trust Wilder Kent Award earlier this year. $150,000. You can buy a lot of honey for that. Sweet. Well, that's it for this episode of Talk on the Wild Side, the last one of 2023, but so much more to look forward to in 2024. It would be great if you can come with me on the journey. I'm Rob Smith, and this has been a Wild Rover Media production for Kent Wildlife Trust. Have a fantastic Christmas and a fab new year. Try not to eat too much, and please try to avoid buying too much plastic rubbish that's only destined for landfill. And if you possibly can, do go wild in the country. Mm-hmm.